We try to find ways to measure every aspect of prison life, to try to understand it and to assess its effectiveness. But how do we, how can we conceptualise and measure the moral quality of prison life? Today's guest has contemplated these exact questions. My name is Omar Phoenix Khan, and this is Justice Focus. Before we start today, just to let you know, Alison is accompanied by a chorus of birds from her garden in the first few minutes, and there's no deleting them from the recording, but they don't last long, so don't worry. And so now, by popular demand, here is Professor Alison Liebling. Alison Liebling is Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Cambridge, and director of the Institute of Criminology's Prison Research Centre. She conducted her first piece of prison research as a research assistant for Professor Keith Bottomley at the University of Hull in 1986, where she had been awarded the university's first distinction for her MA in criminology. Alison then completed her PhD at Cambridge under the supervision of Dr Adrian Grounds and published the research as her first book, Suicides in Prison, in 1992. This has been followed by a series of successful books and publications on several topics, including suicides, suicide attempts amongst young adults, public-private sector comparisons, the work and role of prison officers, and the nature and quality of staff-prisoner relationships. In 2004, she published Prisons and Their Moral Performance, which contemplates how to conceptualise and measure the moral quality of prison life. Alison has also recently been awarded the Leverhulme Major Research Fellowship, so we can expect some more brilliant work from her in the near future. Professor Alison Liebling, welcome to Justice Focus. Thank you very much for inviting me. No, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you, and, and thank you for, for making the time to have a chat. Now, you've also kindly sent me three papers um, to have a read before we've chatted, so we've got a lot that we can talk about today and I do definitely want to get into some detail of your work but I also want to hear about you and your journey in in criminology and I've I've read that you said that becoming professor of criminology at Cambridge wasn't the plan at all so <laughs> what what was the plan I don't know whether I ever had a plan I, I think um I wasn't very future oriented hmm. and I know certainly compared to my sister who did have a plan and was making sacrifices to sort of take steps in that direction mm. if I didn't enjoy what I was doing in the moment I couldn't do it so yeah. for me everything has always been about and I think I give this advice to all my students focus on what you want to do now and love it and if you mm. love it it'll take you to the next place and mm. that that's the best strategy I have and it's the strategy I followed yeah. Um, so I get part of the problem was that my own family background, um, my parents were the first of their respective generations to go to university right. and both ended up becoming doctors. So my dad was a psychiatrist and my mother was a GP mm. and they were a bit sort of um, dominated by the world of medicine. I think they felt it was a safe 
profession. They expected us or hoped that we might go in that direction. And I was both squeamish and <laughs> not very, there was something about the medical world that I could see that I wasn't sure was for me. Mm. But that meant once I declared that, I was sort of on my own and they yeah. almost said that to me, you know, well, then we can't advise you. And it sort of felt like I found my own way rather, mm. uh, what's the word, accidentally. And the, the big problem was that I liked both arts and sciences. <laughs> and in those days, yeah. I don't know whether it's still the case now, everyone was throwing up their hands in despair and saying, you know, you can't, you can't do that. Yeah. But I did it anyway. And, it, and I've always sort of want I think ending up being a social scientist was perfect for someone who mm. likes uh, rigor and real knowledge and all those sorts of things but is quite intuitive and passionate about things and somehow you need I think you have to be sort of in the tension between art and science mm. all the time yeah. so I sort of found my way um, in the dark <laughs> but <laughs> each step along the way felt good so I just carried on doing it yeah and what would you say you loved at that point then? That what was the thing that you were doing that you couldn't that uh, that, that drove you at that yeah. point? Well, it was at school. It was literature. I got right. really, right. really turned on to um, not just English literature. I did French A level and French mm. literature too, and I was in love with George Eliot, with uh, Tolstoy, with um, uh, Dostoevsky. I, I, I read everything mm. I could get my hands on, and uh, I had really, really good. English teacher so I went to a comprehensive school and this this was a for some reason where I grew up in Sutton Coalfield there was a year where they still had a grammar school but they still had a comprehensive school so they had ran them in parallel right. and my older sister had gone to the grammar school and I wouldn't go so I was a bit um, single-minded in those oh, days okay. <laughs> maybe always <laughs> and for, I wanted to go to the comprehensive school because that's where all my friends were going and right. yep. you know didn't want to go to the school that my sister was at and and so that was so important for mm. me because um, the teachers responded really warmly to someone like me who was a kind of a little swat at least in the <laughs> subjects that I enjoyed I certainly wasn't mm. in the subjects I didn't enjoy but mm. I was so sort of in love with literature that the it sort of felt like that stood out a bit mm. in this school which was very mixed and so I had this funny experience of being both a sort of quiet SWAT in these subjects and and really teachers really warmly firing that up mm. so you know I really get the education transforming lives thing but I also was quite attracted to the the delinquent girls in my <laughs> year who were much more interesting than most of the kind of swatty Christians as I saw it and I liked again I liked being in both worlds these mm. sort of girls that seemed really mature interesting you know full of personality wore makeup you know lived in the real world mm. and part of me wanted all that um, but another part of me was very sort of tame in the classroom and mm. did, did lots you, of... Did you dip your toe into the other other side? Well, that was that was kind of happening by itself outside of school mm. because um, I had my parents divorced when I was about 10 or so. And mm. that was 
it, it created some difficulties and I would say there were some tricky years. So I think mm. probably when I was a sort of early teenager, um, if I hadn't found literature, I'm not sure like what might have, I could have taken a very different path. Mm. But I also found a very, really good bunch of friends outside of school around music so it was rock music this was birmingham in the 1970s and right. um, my sister and i although we were at different schools we shared this group of friends and we all got together you know most of the weekend and they were brilliant accepting lovely ordinary people most of whose parents had got divorced you know mm. they, they kind of lived in a pub uh, which we were going to underage but they were actually they were really important for me growing up as a sort of place where I got accepted I felt really close to them yeah uh, we did lots of things together and it was a sort of break from the both the madness of home but also the sort of seriousness of school mm. so I think that was all pretty fortunate in a way yeah yeah oh, it was, yeah really interesting and so that's so that's kind of school age but then when you're moving into thinking about your initial career what was it what was the the love that moved because it's yeah you, you, it wasn't literature that you followed no i know, it wasn't. I know you I, snuck a little bit in is that right yes in your that's right yeah. yes i think i had this i had this thing about literature being I wanted to do something applied. So I knew I wanted to be grounded in the world. Mm. And I think, again, I wasn't sure I wanted to, I mean, this is doesn't sound very nice, but I think it was the way I was thinking. I didn't want to spend my university years around the sort of people who did English literature. <laughs> I wanted to be around people who were, you know, into the real world, grounded right. in the real world. Right. I don't know why that was really important to me, but it just was. Mm. And so, I looked around and I think I probably applied for different things at different universities, but there were politics came up in most of the combinations. So mm. I knew, it wasn't that I knew anything about politics. It was that I didn't. And I thought might as well learn something. Yeah. And uh, York, which turned out to be the place I really wanted to go, did a literature subsidiary course combined with politics. Mm. And when I saw that degree, and they were so nice to me when I went for my interview. Unlike some other universities I applied to, like mm. Durham, where they gave me a really hard time. The people at York just said, oh yeah, we like you, well, mm. two C's and you're in, you know, yeah. that was it, I was off. And that was absolutely perfect um, because it meant I had some choices. The, the mm. politics degree at York was fabulous. And because I was doing a subsidiary subject in literature, I had to do a bridging course called Politics and the Novel. And that's when I reread Tolstoy's Resurrection and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Mm. And they just, you know, exploded in me. And I felt like I didn't know I didn't know about criminology then, but I knew that the topics in these novels were mm. the things that mattered to me most, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And then and actually when I got to the end of my first degree, I had a little crisis because I didn't know what to do next yeah. and I was sort of you know now what yeah and I'd, I'd also done a course called justice and social ethics in this in the third year which was a huge option and I'd I'd loved it with a passion mm. and did really well on that course and I went to a careers advisor in sort of desperation and this is a miracle the careers advisor listened to me 
talking about how I didn't want to give up. You know, I, I wanted to blend sociology, philosophy, psychology, literature, you know, all of these. I wanted to keep them all. Mm. And somehow this careers advisor had done criminology. And she just said, have you ever heard of criminology? And I can remember her showing me the syllabus. Yeah. And when I saw the syllabus, I just thought, this is it. This is my subject. Ah, such an excited kind of, feeling. Yeah. Oh, I was so, I was so excited. And it, it really, it really spoke to me. I knew it was my subject. Mm. And so I ended up going to Hull, which had this amazing then department with Keith Bottomley and his closest colleague, Clive Coleman. It was such a good place. And I did it part time mm. uh, for various reasons. And it, it meant those, I did it over two years. And it was partly because I, w I wanted to do it thoroughly and for a long time. Mm. And so those years were really good years. And I just, I just sort of, I felt totally at home with everything that was in in criminology as a subject yeah. um i even liked learning spss and doing statistics but i what i really <laughs> oh, <wow>. loved was <laughs> <laughs> the, really we had loved. a good teacher we had a really good teacher but I, I the department was sort of quite small but i was with other part-time students and so mm. lots of them were mature students they were people with real jobs mm -hmm. and we were really bonded as a group and so um it, it was just it was just a joy mm. yeah and so i became even more of a swat and um i can remember towards the end of my second year uh keith bottomley was offered a home office research contract and he needed a research assistant right. and he got his colleague clive coleman to sort of sound me out we used to go home on the bus together because i was still living in york and commuting to hull Mm -hmm. and Clive lived in Beverly which was on my bus route and so while we were on the bus together he really casually mentioned that um, Keith has got this home office job and he thinks you might be able to kind of work on it you'd have to finish your thesis a bit early and I was like yes yes I'll do it yes <laughs> and he said think about it you know and I was like yes sign me up sign me up where can I yeah. sign up for this and it was a job carrying out research on a project called Young Offender Through Care which was involved me in prison three young offender prisons mm. and I just couldn't I couldn't wait to start this mm. and amazingly I mean this shows how much things go through the generations Keith said to me that he'd done his filling or it was a diploma then in criminology in Cambridge mm. and had then been employed or maybe it was even before he did it on a project with Tony Bottoms the Dover Borstal project right so he knew that you could go and do field work in a prison without a single qualification or bit of experience because he'd done that himself. Mm. And so he placed his trust in me completely, basically employed me on his project. You could do that sort of thing in those days. Mm. And then sort of took me up to my first prison and left me there. And you know, I had to learn the job as I went. Mm. And that, Do you remember that, that first day? I don't know whether I remember the first day. I remember aspects of it. So it, the first prison was Medemsley Detention Centre in Consett in Durham. And what I remember was going to Durham and, and Keith and I by then had a, quite a good intellectual friendship. And we talked about an academic who was based at Durham. So I think we started off in Durham, perhaps the night before, and then went to find the prison the next day. 
and I remember more about once I was left there on my own that I was staying in halls of residence in Durham because it was the holidays oh yeah and I met all these open university students who came and took me to the pub <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of found a life or a life found me you know within yeah. five minutes of arriving and what I remember about the prison that this will never leave me that um that there was an officer on the gate and he was the complete opposite to the officers I'd read about in criminology books Hmm. He was so amenable and friendly and helpful, really helped me get the research project off the ground. You know, here's what you have to do. I'll find you your trainees. Mm. You know, he became my ally from the word go. And the person I had a problem with was a probation officer. And and by that stage, I still thought probation officers were the heroes of the criminal justice system. And none of these, these were young lads. So they were, you know, sort of 17 to 21. Uh, maybe even younger and their probation officers outside wouldn't come and see them because they didn't approve of imprisonment mm. so they were taking a kind of there was it, the, the probation service this was the late 80s they were going through quite a kind of political stage yeah. of yes. you know uh, objecting to imprisonment which is fair enough but they would say things like you know there's no point in seeing him while he's in prison can't do anything with him we'll wait till he comes out and because my job was through care and I was interviewing these young lads who who were so fragile and vulnerable and, you know, were, were in tears often, mm. uh, were being chucked out of their parents' homes if they were, you know, if they were there in the first place. Loads of them, like, didn't really speak. They covered up their mouths. They didn't answer questions. It took me, it took me a bit of time to kind of find... What they need is time and they need to believe I really want to listen to their story. Mm. And the fact that they didn't assume that from the start taught me a lot about yeah. the, the kind of um, ingredients of criminal justice. Yeah. And so it was what was so interesting was how much I learned once I went into the real world wasn't reflected in the textbooks and that you think you know who the good guys and the bad guys are and you just don't (laughs) you just don't you have to start from scratch and it was such a good learning experience for me and I got so much support from you know the people around me and Keith would come and visit from time to time (laughs) Mm. and I had this notebook my fieldwork notebook Mm. and I'd write all the kind of fieldworky things in the front of it and then in the back I would rant about these magistrates who came to visit and sat in the governor's office asking if they should send these young people to them you know even younger and for longer and I was having to observe all these things and it was driving me mad and I was ranting in the back of my notebook and of course Keith was reading my notebook and so he shared with me a very similar experience that he'd had when he started doing research and it was the era of the abolition of the death penalty and it was sort of his emotional reaction to some of that 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 sort of fired his commitment to the whole subject of criminology and i think i was going through something very similar yeah. with these you know young kids who i thought were all like my brother um in in lots of ways and yet this kind of system that regarded them as only dangerous which was just so far from the truth mm. and if I, if you don't mind I'd, I'd like to ask you a bit more about your your approach that you've developed 
since then in, in talking to, to people in prison. And I've, I've read your recent paper, which is a very personal and reflective paper, which is titled Women in Our Own Rights or Honorary Men, Reflections on a Professional Life in Prisons Research. And what I found really interesting in that is how you talk about um, your approach to to well, you talk about your approach as appreciative inquiry. So I'd love to hear you talk about that. But also, yeah. you know, you, you talked about how you sometimes were staying in the same accommodation as the people you're yes. observing at work, and you have yeah. friendships with people, and sort of working in, in, in that tension between friendship and work. And and then you also, I, I remember you, re you reading about you talking about your old notebooks and realizing that actually, in your mind, you'd smoothed over some of the. Yes. of the, the nuances and the difficulties of reality in your early work. And, and so, yeah, I'd love to hear yeah. a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot there, I guess. I mean, again, I've done, I've done my work from instinct and read the methods textbooks later. So, you know, mm. I do the work in a way that comes naturally. And then you find the books that sort of help you make sense of this mm. style that you believe in. And, and obviously I've learned, I'm still learning, actually and also still finding a language with which to express yeah, how i think exactly. good yeah. research gets done but the word intimate would definitely be in there so mm. you know this is a human field uh, people need to trust you and i i do have some i've always had some problems with the formalities of research application procedures for example mm. that require you to pretend you're some kind of neutral objective consumer of data yeah you know that is not right in my view in this field in particular mm. and so although i'm uh bounded in lots of ways if if a young prisoner cries in front of me and can't carry on you know i've got my hand on his arm before i've thought about it mm. and i'm being a human being with another human being and if we go off Peace and don't come back to the interview then that's how it is mm. and so in in every I mean I suppose what's a bit unusual is that I feel like that about all the players in the criminal justice field so one minute it can be young prisoners the next minute you know I've had prison officers in tears uh, telling me they've thought about suicide tonight yeah. and we've had that conversation and I've also had governors in tears uh, talking about some of their personal experiences of battling with the Prison Officers Association over the years or mm. whatever. So for me, a humanistic research approach means everybody is a human. Mm. And it's really important and part of the sort of intellectual challenge to take everyone's account really seriously and then try and work out you know what's going on in this world mm. and I guess appreciative inquiry has really helped me um, because I, I discovered it by accident at um, Trinity Hall over a big sort of dinner I was sitting opposite Charles Elliott who was the Dean of my college and we might have already known each other a bit but somehow we got talking about work which is what all these college dinners are supposed to be all about sort of intellectual exchange he right. was an organizational uh, he was an economist by background and interested in organizational development and I think I was telling him that I'd been invited to do a 
study of prison officers in a particular prison for a particular reason and I was thinking about how to do it and the problem of officers being very unused to and a bit suspicious of research mm. and I can't remember how we came to sort of uh, end up deciding that Charles should come with me to prison <laughs> but he started telling me about appreciative inquiry and mm. as soon as he did I just thought this is it we, we've got to get him into prison and he's got to teach me how to do this and the reason he had used it in impoverished African communities trying to help communities themselves find their own energy vision method of, de of economic development that was what he was trying to do with it mm. but, and so that's what he was talking about but I was hearing this is a way of going into a beleaguered and distrusting and uh, kind of impoverished organization or world and engaging them in a meaningful conversation about what matters to them as a way of both understanding that world but also finding the energy to kind of help it build itself in that direction and so so I took Charles with me into this study of um, prison officers at Whitemore and I'd already done lots of research by then with prison officers and watching Charles talking to an you know six foot six prison officer about the best day he's ever had in his job and watching what that did to the prison officer mm. and the, the way it would change the energy you know it, what, what I was good at was humanistic listening so you know you go into a prison you look sympathetic and mm. you get everybody's sort of nightmare frustration and so I was very good at finding out the pains of being a prison officer I think I knew a lot mm. about that yeah. but here was something different that was well, what, what's the best day you ever had in the job and you get straight to the heart of what made this person come into the job in the first place mm. and underneath the frustration and distress there's a uh, there's a human being who ha came in with aspirations and still has those aspirations and I just found as a method it 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 sort of took you to the other extreme of experience and it, it didn't avoid people think it sort of avoids all the bad stuff and it really really doesn't you get mm. the whole picture but it means you get and, it, and it's the same if you apply it to a someone who's suicidal a prisoner who's feeling suicidal appreciative inquiry would make you ask what about when was the last time a day felt all right for you yeah right what was going on that day how did it feel mm. what do you think you had then that you feel like you don't have now and you can see how it's it's generative you're mm. it's all real and it gets left out often but it's actually the it's the bit of the story that will take you to the future mm. it'll help you create that environment in which the day was okay and I, I would say it's the same with uh, offending that you know we are obsessed with offending and it's linked it's got lots in common with the growing desistance literature but you know what about the period in your life when you weren't offending it, who was around you how did mm. it feel what was going on and it, so there's it's a it's a technique but it's a way of seeing that I think 
gives you and the person you're talking to or the organization you're using it with energy that's real it's it's based on they might be extreme or exceptional experiences but they're real and that means when you start planning for a better future those plans are grounded in something that is recognizable and real mm. so I, I find it absolutely transformative and use it all the time now yeah do you think it's do you think it's easily taught that kind of approach or is that something <laughs> you have to experience um i do teach it and um I, a lot of people i give a you know classes on it and mm. lots of people get inspired by it i would say a lot of our mst students so our part-time master's course for mm. senior professionals in criminal justice they get it but i think they get it very quickly because they're they're steeped in the world of problems yeah. and in the same way that I understood it as soon as Charles started talking and its potential I think if you work in criminal justice mm. and then and some of them have come across things like it or they've met Charles Elliott because he spends a lot of his time in prisons mm. so they get it with my younger students um, that it might take a bit longer and they might not be as natural at it but mm. some certainly are and there are some people some with say social work training I can think of or others who just seem to kind of think in these sorts of ways anyway they just they just get it and lots of my students like, like I did probably at first feel a bit uncomfortable asking appreciative questions to start with because mm. they feel a bit unnatural but then they always tell me and then I and then this came out and you know it was just so exciting and they, they become converted often yeah yeah Yes, yeah, such, such interesting because it's yeah treating people like the humans rather than just a, you know some kind of computer to give you the response that you want to your question. Exactly, I think it makes so much exactly. sense. Exactly, it's so it's creative and it's energizing. Mm. And the theory behind it is the heliotropic principle from biology. And I, biology was one of my other passions when I was at school. So I did biology A level. So I guess I like this analogy right. that yeah. plants grow in the direction of the sun the source of their life and energy but the the theory says so do people and so do organizations so if you can put them in touch with what gives them life and energy then they will it will help them to move in that direction mm. so it, it's both a source of change and development but i used it as a research method slightly controversially and it was hard to get my first article published mm. because the you know people didn't like it they thought it was pollyannaish or you know head in sandish and it, it's actually right. the opposite yeah um but uh it's it's proved i think somehow it's more respectful mm. and it's more emotionally careful to talk to someone to let them talk about all the worst experiences that they're having mm. but then to together remember that this is what the better days look like mm. and and the peak experiences are what we're kind of using to understand what might look better with so i, yeah. I love it no it's great and i'm glad actually you just mentioned about publishing for the first time because moving on from your actual approach in the research i'd love to ask you about your writing style because in that same paper you talk about how often you've been mistaken as an older male writer and you talk yes. about this of the intersection of of gender and power in, in research and um yes yeah. yeah, so i'd love to hear your thoughts yes. on that and um yes yeah 
That it's really it is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, as it happens, George Eliot, who really is my literary hero, yeah, yeah. Um, she obviously chose a male name, um, and she is a philosopher. I mean, she's a she's a Tolstoy, uh, mm. but she's a woman, and there is something really profound about uh, <laughs> this is trite to say it, but about gender and a speaking voice. And for hmm. whatever reason, I, I think I might say this in that article that's, that has made me reflect on this probably more than I have done before, that I, I did want to be one of the boys when I was at school hmm. and not, not to literally be a boy, but I wanted what the boys had. And they had a kind of freedom to be themselves. Do Like they played tennis and we were supposed to play netball. They did uh, technical drawing when we did needlework I nearly swore then um, you know I, that was one of the subjects I was more or less expelled from because I was just I behaved so badly because I right. didn't want to do needlework I wanted to yeah. do um, woodwork and technical drawing so I think there's maybe I don't know maybe that's got something to do with uh, my writing style which mm. is almost it's people always say it's very clear and probably I sound quite authoritative I suppose and that that is what I try to bring out of my female students who are always more tentative mm. than male students who you know I, I'm generalizing of course and things are changing yeah. but it it so upsets me when my brilliant female students use perhaps maybe uh, you know that they're, they're so mm. unwilling to be authoritative and for some reason I, I found that voice and I was always much stronger in my writing voice than I was in my speaking voice. Yeah, that really resonated with me when you said that. Did it? I, I feel that, yeah, yeah, definitely. I've never That's thought of it that really way before, but um, but yeah, I, I also feel like I can express myself much more clearly. <laughs> I guess it's the, right. the time that you can take to do it as well, but um, yeah, just yes. the way you explained it all, it just made so much yeah. more sense to me. It's yeah. Well, I, if you, when I talked about my first experience in prisons and these young prisoners who were so unwilling to speak because they mm. weren't they weren't confident they were going to be heard, mm. and I, something in that territory really really means a lot to me. That um, in a way, finding a writing voice is a safe alternative to feeling like you've got a speaking voice. You know, at least to mm. start with, and it just feels like other things don't get in the way you don't get interrupted you're sort of you've got some time to formulate and for me writing is feeling and thinking it's it's a way of working out what's going on mm. so I think it's a really really important mode of communication and it's it's the voice that can sort of almost start to count first once you can start expressing yourself on paper so I was an, I was totally you know obsessed I would write poetry and stories and write on anything that I could mm. find and and you know sort of still do writing is my uh, love my great love mm. yeah well move that that's a very nice segue to because I want to hear a little bit more about your passion for George Eliot and how it makes sense oh, yes. to, to your to your reflections on your career and so at first people might not and automatically make the connection, but you, you've written this paper, which is called Finding George Eliot in Prison, 
reflections yes. on its moral life. And already, you know, I, obviously I've, I've read the paper, but, you know, thinking about um, what you've just said there of, uh, and um, this paper, is, you say it's deeply personal and you, you, you write that you, you, you wrote it after a particularly traumatic um, research project that you'd just gone through. And so before yes. we even get onto that, I just wondered if you could reflect on what, what seems to be how, uh, the fact that you bring so much of your personal life into the way you approach your work. And I mean, you, you talk about how you've reflected differently on how you've interacted with parents, with life events and things like that, and how that's actually affected yeah. how you write in your work. And so... Um, yeah, that's linked to the George Eliot stuff, but maybe you could make it clear how that links. Yes, yeah. I mean, some of these things I don't think I was aware of mm. at the time, and you, you just sort of again, I was very intuitive about what mattered to me and what I loved, and what I can. And so one one thing that's happened to me in the last few years that's really um, got me all excited, I think, is um, after both of my parents died one after the other totally kind of in different worlds so they they've been mm. 30 years apart but somehow managed to coordinate their illnesses and deaths one after oh. the other which so it was you know it was quite a mm. it was quite a difficult few years um with illnesses and mm. you know traveling and grief and all of that but yeah. then just after all that had happened um my colleague ben crew had decided that he wanted the academic staff at the institute to do um, a series of seminars for the students on their intellectual trajectory and he asked me to do mine and I was a bit raw at the time but I said yes and you know so went away and started thinking about it and I must have been in a really reflective frame of mind mm. and I was thinking a lot about my parents and my life and somehow I ended up realising or sort of rediscovering George Eliot and Tolstoy, Dostoevsky and all of that and realised that that was probably when I most worked out that my trajectory, my intellectual trajectory went back that far and so I gave this seminar and it was so interesting I said I said all this and a lot of the people who were in the room said they hadn't read Tolstoy's Resurrection some of them hadn't read Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment and out of that seminar there arose a shared reading group which is led by my colleague and PhD student Judith Garden mm. and as it happens we were just starting an evaluation of a shared reading project in prison pipes which meant that we were about to do a study of these groups so let's have one of our own and I think this group has really started off by really indulging me so we read <laughs> Tolstoy's right. Resurrection together, okay. yeah. followed by Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment together. Mm. And um, it was amazing. It was just amazing. It's all in there. Everything that I have mm. studied since, it's all in mm. Tolstoy, Dostoevsky and George Eliot. So with Tolstoy, it, it's sort of obvious. It's that, you know, the convicted, the judiciary and the self-satisfied or the self-deceiving are kind of, you know, of the the main character seduces this woman who ends up in prison and the the book is all about what he has done to her and how she's the dignified character and mm. all the dignity is among the prisoners 
none of it in the criminal justice system or the judiciary and you know it's Mm. so powerful and to read it again now after all these years spent doing prisons research i was thinking like it was all in it was all there Mm. everything i've sort of seen it, it was all in tolstoy and then dostoevsky is the other side of that story that there was a there's a sentence in it i don't know whether you've read it yeah but so you you know then that raskolnikov murders this old woman and the 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 real powerful moment in the book is when sonia says to raskolnikov who's more or less um confessed to the crime oh what have you done to yourself Mm. and so she cries in despair it almost brings tears to my eyes saying it now she jumps up she flungs herself on his neck and she held him tightly in her arms and that's the response to the murderer what have you done to yourself and it it just felt like that for me that brought back this sort of inner conviction I think I'd always Mm. had that people who end up offending are in distress and are damaging themselves as much as they're damaging others and that there's just you know the mess that is the human struggle Mm. and it's just not about good people and bad people and uh you know the the kind of the ones who know and the ones who don't Mm. and with so with george Eliot, uh it's about her moral grammar of humankind Mm. that obviously i totally identified with Maggie Tulliver so I it was uh, Mill on the Flots was my big love and there's a paragraph I did I opened it because I thought we might get on to George Eliot mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if I'm allowed I this is this Please is my do. the paragraph it's it's about Maggie who is you know I, a million people identify with Maggie obviously um she was a creature full of eager passionate longings for all that was beautiful and glad thirsty for all knowledge with an ear straining after dreamy music that died away and would not come near to her, with a blind, unconscious yearning for something that would link together the wonderful impressions of this mysterious life and give her soul a sense of home in it. You know, when I, when I was mm-hmm. growing up, uh, you know, and I was sort of passionate and a bit sensitive and a bit troubled, uh, this was, it was like finding a friend. Mm. And... George Eliot, uh, Jane Davis, who runs the reader organisation, recently said to me that George Eliot was almost like good authority to her, you know, a a sort of kind, stable figure of authority who could Mm. make sense of chaos. And I I think that there was definitely something like that going on for me. Yeah. But what what I love is her her moral grammar of humankind, that she's Mm. got a way of showing... The, the, what I think I found in my research over and over again that kindness keeps people alive and unkindness makes it impossible to survive mm-hmm. and you know now when I go back to George Eliot I find that was all there too and all my kind of empirical studies have just come back to this um, what, what George Eliot calls the vibrations of fellow feeling and yeah. I've always felt this in my life that if the vibrations are hostile something in you shrinks and suffers and that, that this can be very damaging Whereas if the vibrations around you are uh, if they have recognition and kindness mm. in them then we start to grow and flourish And I mean I, I haven't returned to George Eliot 
until this quite recent period. But I would say the match between what I've found in my research life and what mm. she was saying in her novels, it couldn't be closer. Yeah, and it, it does jump off the page from, from what I read, you know, uh, just to just thinking about your appreciative inquiry and then reading from this paper where uh, just to, to quote what you you wrote it says George Eliot argued that the secret of deep human sympathy is supported by the faithful representation of commonplace things what she called authentic yeah. representation is something yeah. which has a moral value and exactly. yeah when you talked about wanting to work in grounded you know the grounded reality of things it just made so much sense to me that, um, yes. that this would resonate with you yeah yeah I love her concept of authentic description and mm. it's my research ideology that that is yeah. our main task and it's not straightforward it's harder and it's getting harder and that to that our role is to describe the world as fully and accurately in all its complexity mm. and then I think I've used Iris Murdoch somewhere to say that is and George Eliot of course says it's a, that has a moral task she was referring to literature and painting mm. but I'm saying research does the same thing that if we if we become a good witness to other people's experience then of course that enlarges other people's sympathies but it also shows you what's morally at stake mm. and so it, it's not that it's that description is so much more than description if it's done well and it's authentic it also lets some injustices speak for themselves mm. if you see what i mean yeah 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 and yeah. there's and you talk about so many injustices that you that you witnessed and uh, again something that that struck quite a chord with me is when you know you reflect on people passing away and how humans at their most sort of paired back and fundamental when they, yeah. when you're by their deathbed and I think yes. anybody who's had a loved one go through yeah. that and and lost them and then you you, you compare yeah. that to the prison uh, yes. experience I yes that was really I mean that that was obviously that was that was sort of a whole culmination of mm. uh, my own experience rereading George Eliot and having just lost my own parents and I mm -hmm. did I spent a lot of time with my dad in the last three months of his life and here it is in George Eliot so th there's a paragraph I think it might be in that paper um, from Janet's Repentance where she talks about um, the deathbed scene mm. and that you know when you're sitting with a human being lying prostrate uh, who you're about to lose suddenly the moral relation of man to man is reduced to its utmost clearness and simplicity uh, bigotry can't confuse it theory can't pervert it we we know with absolute clarity that what matters is the relationship between human beings mm. and it, it it dawned on me it was sort of coming slowly that the prison situation and maybe particularly now with these incredibly long sentences it's it's the nearest thing to death without being death and that it so it's sort of starting to come clear to me that there's a reason why I've gone into prisons and emerged with this moral framework mm. uh, and it's because whether prisoners can say it or know it they are in the fundamental that everything gets stripped away 
and this is the tragedy of the prison that it's it's when you're in prison that you realize how much your relationships mattered yeah. how much materialism so many prisoners say if only i'd known then what i know now mm. why did i need this money you know mm. their relationships with their children their parents it, it, suddenly they're in the fundamental experiencing what matters and they articulate it yeah. brilliantly and so it feels like I can now see um, adding it all up together why the framework that emerged in my early study trying to measure the quality of prison life was a moral framework mm. because it's a sort of it's a very morally intense environment the very opposite of what people assume I think yeah yeah I think that's that's exactly it and I think that's a perfect point to take us to the third paper we're going to mention um, which you've kindly recorded a, a clip of which is moral performance inhuman and degrading treatment and prison pain this article begins with a case a 60 year old man in a maximum security prison he was high risk category a the highest security category possible so in deep with major restrictions on what freedoms were possible. For example, he had to move cells every 28 days. He was three years into a life sentence with a 28-year tariff. He was a well-known career criminal. Typically, for this new population, he'd been involved in a gun crime as an accomplice, the driver, and had been convicted of joint enterprise. He pleaded guilty at the trial and felt considerable remorse. He had not understood that the gun would be used, but he had attracted the same sentence as the man who pulled the trigger. He said that returning to prison was a culture shock and that he had no intention of seeing out his sentence. I'll be 80 before I can even be considered for release. I've seen old men end up in a wheelchair in prison. I know I will never walk by a river again, taste freedom, walk on a beach with my grandchildren. At one point he said, I've had a noose round my neck but I didn't have the guts to do it. One day, I'll save up my pills. I've told my wife to just enjoy the grandchildren. I had noticed a red sore in his head and wondered whether this was the consequence of the prison's unhealthy environment. He referred to the sore later in the interview. Do you know what, he said, I'm praying that it's cancerous. We talked for an hour and a half. He had volunteered for the interview following various informal exchanges and was an articulate and helpful interviewee. He talked about the new social arrangements, as well as new problems facing prison officers, in a prison where 94% of the prisoners are serving sentences of more than 10 years. A total of 37% of these prisoners in this establishment follow the Muslim faith. He said he felt sorry for the youngsters in prison today, 26 years old some of them, and they're serving sentences longer than they've been alive. I've had the same thought many times. He gave examples of prison officers bending the rules to bridge the gap between those rules and their own human instincts. Mr. Unnamed Officer always lets me take half an ounce of snout, tobacco, to my mate in the seg. They know I always have six or seven packets when I should have five. This is a jail. You need a bit of give and take. Not all officers were like that. Some were only too eager to do it by the book. On the other hand, he referred to a fellow prisoner who was threatening and challenging the staff constantly. He's unemployed. He winds everyone up. They unlock him for an easy life. 
back off from him. Here, his grievance was a different and less helpful kind of under-enforcement. It's interesting that the phrase he used when making his complaints was, it's a liberty. His situation, and that of his more challenging wingmate, is all about liberty. His survival strategy was to smoke regularly a ready supply of heroin. His story illustrates the argument developed in this article, that prisons are places where the principles on which human life and liberty depend are tested to the core. They are inherently depriving and painful and deeply complex. They've become more inhuman and degrading in England and Wales in conditions of high security than they once were. Great. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for recording that clip. And it's, it's really interesting. I mean, actually, I want to ask you before I jump into questions about that. I, you know, I asked you what kind of paper you'd like to talk about. And this was a paper from 2011 rather than a paper yes. more recently. So what made you pick this paper yeah. for your clip to discuss rather than something else? Yeah, I think it's because the project that um, that paper is about has sort of set the course for everything I've done subsequently and I'm still doing it. So mm. the, the what what that uh, excerpt brings out for me, I mean, lots of things, but, but one thing is just the, the lengthening sentences, mm. the, um, the sheer sort of scale of those sentences and what that uh, poses, whether, what problems that poses for the people who are trying to serve them, but, but you know, for everybody. Um, but also the little bit about the officer that um, there was a form of imprisonment, long-term imprisonment in particular, mm or a form of order in long-term prisons that sort of accepted the negotiations uh, of material goods and other freedoms. Mm. And we're not in that world anymore. So it, it was the sort of Sykes model of negotiated order. And that where um, the prisoner says he was an officer, let him take tobacco to his mate in the seg, mm. you know, there was a time when that was seen as reasonably legitimate. And I suppose it's it's one of the things that interests me most about prisons is where the boundaries are between uh, chaos and tyranny. That, you know, it's, it's all about finding the mean between excess and deficit, mm. as Aristotle would have said. And that, mm. that part of the struggle with the prison is the way it sort of oscillates between uh, attempts at liberal regimes and repression and it sort of mm. moves between the two whereas actually the only good prisons I've ever seen have managed to kind of walk a line but the question is where is that line and yeah. how do we know and is there agreement about it and is it where we think it is and so I, I like this example um, because I think the examples, again, George Eliot would say this, it's in the particular that mm. we can make sense of the general and yeah. you need a kind of particular example to argue about. Yeah. And I think this is a good example that, you know, this is humanity being permitted by one particular officer. So I made, made it clear that these days, not all officers are like that and that yeah. the prison service is now like the rest of us, uh, required to work to rules. And, you know, I always knew I wouldn't 
be a lawyer I always knew that wasn't going to be an option for me because mm. I think I have a deep discomfort with rules because they so they they so rarely apply to the particular case mm. and that I see rules as guidance they're a means to an end and we should always keep our eye on the end yeah um, so uh, it, it's complicated territory but that was why the this excerpt appealed yeah. to me because I thought these things have changed and I think some of the current struggles are because of the combination of lengthening sentences there's lots of other factors too mm. but also this sort of shift away from any attempt to run prisons in a way that is negotiated mm. yeah and and again I, I can see even though this paper was written a little while ago, the influence of George Eliot, I know your reflections on, on her have been recently, but you know when, she, when you mentioned about her um, sort of discussion of the imperative, the moral imperative of, of art and how you reflect the moral yes. imperative of your work and then, but how do we, you reflect on how, how can we think about the morality if we can't even agree on what the concepts mean? And so you give the example yes. of, concepts such as dignity and humanity exactly. and and how can yeah. we, we need to agree on what they are first of all but then it's yes. fine having them on paper and having yeah. nice definitions but then what does it mean in practice and you yeah. talk about this opera yeah. operationalization which i think is a really good word yes. to, to think about that yeah that that is that's one of the things that i still get very excited about that mm. um concepts yeah. i'm really really interested in them and i think ideas shape action I know they do because I've seen it happen in prisons mm. and so uh, getting your concept straight uh, it, it was I mean this this came out in prisons and their moral performance when um, in the introduction to that book I tell the story of Wolf you know it, it, the Wolf report that that was such a heady and exciting period to be doing prisons research mm -hmm. he launches this amazing analysis and the word justice into the kind of penal sphere and then it gets misunderstood and it turns into care or laxity and it all goes wrong because there was never a conversation about what this word justice means mm. and that, that's another tragedy for the prison service because and for the world because had we talked thought about clarified what the word justice meant then we may never have had the escapes from Whitemore that followed three mm. or four years later uh, which led to the abandonment of the concept of justice and so you know words really really matter yeah. and if they're not carefully defined and understood then uh, terrible things follow and th this is true of every word that that I guess all the all the interesting words are found in prison. So even the word safety, and let's say that that's a big issue now that hmm. that people are kind of talking again about safety. But there's different sorts of safety, and I've written about this and I've tried to show the evidence that, that you know there's a relational version of safety, and then there's a kind of disciplinary situational version of safety. And so hmm. even the conversation about safety can't be had unless we can talk together about yeah. what this word safety means. And mm. I guess that's the part of me that is a, a both a curious intellectual and a an applied 
practitioner <laughs> that mm. I I want to do both at the same time and yeah. in a sort of iterative way all the time. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. It um, when I I was writing about a gender responsive approach to prisons recently on a, a UN document, and what we were talking about in that was how there's always such a focus on security in prison, but it's such a um, sort of a minimised interpretation of what we mean yes. by security. And actually, if we try and open up security and, as you say, safety there into thinking about psychological kinds of security or an emotional yeah. kinds of security, and there's much more yeah. than sort of the locks and keys and, and yeah. um, gate, prison gates, then actually we can conceptualise security much more holistically and, and helpfully, Perfectly. I guess. Yeah, yeah. That, exactly. A lot of that work really, really needs doing. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, um, in that paper you talk about, you know, maybe what, some things that could change, and you talk about how the worlds of moral measurement and human mm. rights standards in penology yeah. should be brought close together. And w could yeah. you just say a bit more what you mean about bringing those yeah. worlds together? Yes, I, I think, and I, it's funny because I do, I end up in quite a lot of dialogue now with the um, European National Preventive Mechanism mm. body. And yeah. I think writing this article was the, again, like most of them, it's the beginning of a, an argument that I want to think about much more, mm. which is understanding the meaning of terms like inhuman and degrading. And yeah. I think what I start to do in that paper is suggest that if we, if we describe the contemporary experience of long-term imprisonment in high security prisons, it looks pretty inhumane and degrading to me. Yeah. But that isn't how the European Court of Human Rights is going to think about it. Uh, they, they tend to think in quite material terms. And although there has been, there's been some really interesting uh, progress in a way over the term hope, that I'm trying to, I, I would love to get all the people who are interested in the human rights work with all the people who are interested in uh, the prison world and all of those who have what you, what we now call lived experience and come to a consensus about what is what is it to feel degraded to feel inhumane mm. although my approach has been to find what's there and to try and describe what humanity is so that we can mm. find it and so if we know what it looks like we can sort of grow it so yeah. that that's been my sort of um uh that's been in the lead but mm. obviously alongside that i'm also trying to describe with a bit more uh phenomenological gravity the, the experience of inhumanity um, mm. so that we can be a bit more powerful about saying this should be a threshold and nobody should be undergoing this experience. Mm. Uh, so I think that, again, the, the language of rights and also the practice of rights doesn't seem to me to get close enough to the phenomenology of suffering. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Mm. And that, you know, maybe there's, there's room for uh, a better collaboration because we're both sort of motivated and by the same wish to eliminate or you know reduce degradation and suffering but if we don't know what it is and we're yeah. kind of in denial about what it is then that's yeah. not likely to work yeah well I'd, I'd, 
I'd love to read <laughs> when you when you worked out where, <laughs> where that intersects. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you'd let me know, yeah, I'd like to know the answer to that. <laughs> yeah. Well, in um, a way, I think I think because I started out in suicide, that that I'm realising more and more mm. how how that, in a way, even though I've I've tried to give it up, as it were, as a topic, yeah. but I keep coming back to it, and mm. in the end, I'm going to give in because it's this. It feels like the fundamental test, mm. and and interesting. I have a. Um, I'm involved in a PhD that's being carried out in a, in Belgium, uh, a wonderful piece of work uh, that's on euthanasia requests by prisoners. Right. And it is so interesting. And it raises, I think, some of these fundamental questions about, you know, under what circumstances do we want to give up living? And to what extent is that to do with the environment that we're in? Mm. And to me, that is a really critical threshold that if, if a, if a prison system is creating uh, non-survivability, then it's not a very good prison system. You know, yeah. and yeah. so the, in a way, the coming using that as my bottom line, I think, and suicide rates as the the ultimate test of whether this is humane or inhumane. That, mm. that it's sort of it's given me a a grip on some of these really difficult questions. Mm. Yeah, and so I, I know you've been you're, you're currently going through a, a period of reflection about your writing so far because you've now just been awarded the Leverhulme Major Research Fellowship, which congratulations on that. And you think Thank I know you. you're thinking about um, moving forward with that. And so I wondered, what do you see as the impact that you want to have with your work? And you know, you talked yeah. at the very beginning about having a, a grounded view in reality. Is that yeah. is that motivated by wanting to really change aspects of the world, or is or is there a different yeah. kind of motivation? Yeah, this is. I don't. You you have no idea how big a question this. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk about this for weeks, but I won't. I won't. But yeah. that word impact. Mm. Um, so much to say because yeah. I think I have had quite a lot of impact. I think my work has had a surprising amount of impact. It wasn't what I set out to do. I set out driven by curiosity and sort of humane concern, but with a certain amount of humility. So, you know, I have self-doubt just like everybody else or mo most other people do. Mm. And I don't think I know how to run the world. Um, I know how to describe it and sort of almost let it speak for itself but I've always been a bit nervous about uh, leg thinking I can legislate from my own research findings Yeah, I think instead I think the sort of work I do at its best it ends up in a really good dialogue usually with people in the prison service which doesn't go far enough very occasionally with ministers I've had some really good conversations around one sheet of paper uh the last was with uh rory stewart mm -hmm. is that if i remembered yes yeah it was a brilliant conversation uh and i thought he really got it and this was going to change the world and then he moved on and started doing another <laughs> job and yeah that's, that gets all rather frustrating mm. so and also i mean i have to say this because it's just it's so um tragic that uh, the work of my own work that's had the most impact has been my work on suicides in prison mm. and I've done four studies on this subject and one of them the safer custody strategy which was a 12 prison study over two and a half years really made an impact and 
the suicide rate in prisons reduced quite dramatically at the end of it was a brilliant really well implemented strategy and we were able to do the research we really needed to do to find out what we needed to find out and suicides reduced because of the strategy and because the evaluation supported the strategy and so the university made me write an impact case study uh, all about that project because mm. it you know it ticked the box impact and you know it was the it was everyone talked about it and you know it's the, it's the example impact case study but I was writing that impact case study at a point where suicides were going up again and mm. the 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 impact uh, world that we now live in the formal kind of you know research council and university driven impact world doesn't care about that mm. you know it's still going to give me loads of credit for uh, contributing to the reduction in suicides it doesn't undo, undo their tick box if suicide yeah. rates are now back where they were in the 80s I, again saying that almost makes me want to cry yeah it, it just feels like what so the problem with impact is and, and I guess that's what's going through my mind now as I'm starting to reflect on my professional life and where I want to go with it you know impact oh, where and over what period of time and in whose eyes mm -hmm. and you know lasting impact uh, there's all sorts of things that I would really like to see happen yeah. but actually we live in a world where the relationship between research evidence and policy is uh, is not strong mm. and so part of the project that I want to do my Leverhulme major research fellowship is partly to kind of um, pull together the the learning I mean first of all tell the story tell the research story and make mm. sense of it and say these are the things that I've now learned I think I probably do feel like I have some sensible things to say grounded mm. in serious evidence um, and that will have implications but I'm sort of waiting I think I'm waiting for the right moment for someone to want to listen to mm. that evidence and in the meantime I think I'm having more impact through my students and colleagues I feel like you know well there's a lot of impact there there's, there's a lot of people yeah. come to the prisons research center uh, they bring lots of energy and passion and experience and we send them out with even more of it hopefully mm. and it feels like we are we are helping to create uh, both both students and practitioner students who go out energized with a bit more kind of evidence behind them but I think my own my own personal research trajectory um, I don't feel like I've been able to intervene in the places where I would have liked to so oh. you know we were talking about saving money why didn't mm. we reduce prison sentences you know mm. instead of stripping all the staff out of prisons yeah why didn't we get to grips with the mm. completely out of sync prison population yeah uh, we knew that private sector competition has driven down costs and that that's produced a risk to safety and order and then we've done it anyway you know mm. there, there were so many points where I I wanted I would have liked to have intervened with evidence and talked endlessly about those projects to anyone mm. who would listen but yeah. it's it's just not been heard yeah 
So well, yeah, so I, I I don't know what to say about impact yeah. apart from it's it's a word that kind of you know pierces my heart a bit at the moment, <laughs> and um, I, I hope that there's a better future ahead of us. Mm. Yeah, it's a heavily loaded word. Um, <laughs> the people in so many different ways, but you know the, uh, I know that you have listened to some of the pods before, and so uh, yes. I'm, I'm thankful for you to do that. And so you'll know that I often like to ask. A question at the end was which is about creating yes. or curating a room um yes. you know if you could put anyone in the world there and you had half an hour now to talk about whatever you want with them who would you be putting in that room and what would you be talking to them about yes I've, i obviously i was thinking about that question because <laughs> yeah. i have been listening to the other <laughs> podcasts and and enjoying them and it's what it's the reason i agreed to speak to you because i think i think they're good um, oh thank you but I don't know whether... Uh, so what comes to my mind when I try and answer the question mm. is two things. Um, one is that I think what I would really like to see happen, because of my frustration with the turnover, you know, the people who, who do listen, who've got power, mm. they just move on. Everybody moves on. And you, you feel like you're wasting your breath a bit with people who aren't still going to be there in six months' time. So I think my model is probably to invent something like the Norwegian, I don't know whether they still do this, but you know the kind of conversation in a mountain where it's a regular conversation right. and you have all the current politicians, but also prisoners, ex-prisoners, uh, staff, specialists, academics. You put them all up a mountain. I'd go and you, I think the Scottish uh, prison service were thinking along these lines for a, a period, but mm. it didn't sort of develop. You know, it would have to be a regular dialogue with all of the players uh, represented and academics are one sort of their one voice in that um, mm. in that sort of community um, but I would love to see something like that so the reason I can't say which people is because I can't think of any yeah. people who are still going to be there mm. in a year's time that you know are, are going to be able to make a difference so yeah. you need to build a a regular format where it's the roles that get represented rather than the people in the the current world we've created but but I, there's also another forum that I did get invited to once mm -hmm. which was amazing which I would love to see develop and um, this was called what was it um, it involved uh, Rowan Williams who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury yep. and the Dalai Lama over a two or three day period they got together in Magdalen College here in Cambridge and they invited there were probably about a hundred people and they were young and old they were artists journalists scientists engineers uh, it was called Inspire Dialogue right and that was amazing that was amazing to be part of and Sounds it was brilliant it was brilliant and it was partly brilliant because of these young people who came from all over the world and all these mm. different disciplines and they were all full of life and energy and they just wanted to reinvent the world but it was everything from water and energy to imprisonment and you know the economy so mm. it was i think we're at a stage now where you need you need all that you know mm. the, the the problems of imprisonment are and you know everything else covid and the climate it for me it's a mm. problem of 
completely out of control neoliberal capitalist global meltdown product productivity you know um mm. mania that has been going wrong for many years and it feels like to solve the problems we've got now whether in criminal justice or anywhere else you actually need to draw the dots between neoliberal punishment and neoliberal economies yeah and that it's fundamental now and i guess i'm one of the people who hopes that will emerge from this period um with a completely renewed set of priorities mm. and um and that that's that's where you know impact talk, we we need to be now making an impact at that sort of level yeah well thank you so much for that i i'd love to see you in a mountain top yes curating this room and um yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds sounds brilliant um yeah i couldn't agree with you more on that i really appreciate you taking the time to you know, go through these re reflections with me and um yeah i'm sure there'll be many oh. people that would appreciate listening to it as well well thank you again for the invitation and thank you for the series so i think it's you you're doing a great job and um it's sort of it's helping some of us overcome our horror of technology and join the right. world <laughs> so thank you very right. much thank you so much Wow, a lot to take in from that episode. I've already listened to it back a couple of times and I've taken something different each time I've listened to it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode and you can find Justice Focus on Twitter. It's been really nice to see people's responses on there. And if you feel like leaving a review on iTunes, I would be massively grateful. See you next time. Cheers. Cheers.